Hi all, welcome to this new episode of my podcast, A Digital Tomorrow. Today, I'm hosting Ritesh Jain. Welcome to my episode. Thank you, Vion, and pleasure is all mine. So thank you for inviting me over here. It's actually my pleasure. Um, for all those of you who may not know uh, Ritesh uh, yet, he's an entrepreneurial technology leader, board advisor with global experience across payments and banking, and the co-founder of Infinite, after leaving HSBC as a CEO of digital. In the past, he also led the future of payments for Visa and introduced Apple Pay, built a wealth management company as a founder CTO. And presently, he's also a member of a G20 initiative for financial inclusion, advisor to open banking in the European Union and Africa, Harvard Business Review, payment regulators and government bodies for the initiative in social and financial inclusion and member of MIT Global Tech Panel. He's also a visiting lecturer to leading business schools, regular speaker and author, diversity and inclusion advocate. Past roles also include mentor to the UK Parliament Digital. So, as you can see, it's a very impressive biography and, well, I'm honored to have you here. Thank you, Will, and uh, thank you again for inviting me over here. I'm sure it is going to be a great conversation. Well, I'm looking at your uh, fantastic biography, which I just uh, summarized. We can see that you have like uh, more than two decades of uh, global experience in digital technology, business transformation, operations. Uh, what were the main challenges that you encountered in, in your previous uh, roles when it comes to, to this area of uh, digitalization? I'm just talking about, you know, these challenges that you can uh, disclose. No, I'm not asking for anything like uh, confidential, but for uh, general ideas. So thank you, Will. That's a very interesting question. The biggest challenge in my career or in my previous worlds, what I've seen, uh, there are multiple aspects. If I look into it from the people perspective or the technology perspective, the biggest challenge is around getting people together, getting them motivated enough. Because I always say, it's all about people. If you can get them together, you'll see the magic happen. And technology is something that we can manage comparatively easier. On the other hand, the uh, challenges related to the technology in banking, payments, and other sectors, it's around the legacy platforms and the services, and specifically more so in the banking and payments. And when it comes down to the payments, we are still relying on to quite legacy technology and platforms. And I was leading the future of payments for Visa in 2010 to 16. I was doing, uh, I've done various roles at Visa. And uh, I can proudly say the payment space is not the same as it was 10 years back. It has moved quite significantly. So yes, the things are changing. The challenges that I've seen, uh, we have overcome up to a certain extent, but there are still a greater challenges related to the regulatory compliances, clarity around the regulatory compliances and the legacy platforms. Mm -hmm. Thank you for for sharing, we're actually going to dig deep uh, on payments uh, later on because uh, you are, of course, an expert on this area. But before moving to uh, financial inclusion and payments, I wanted to ask you as well about uh, Infinite. You are the co-founder of, uh, of this new company, this project, whose goal is to humanize uh, credit and, and credit cards. No? So could you please tell us a bit more about uh, this new project and, 
and why do you think that credit needs to be um, humanized and how can we achieve this goal? Sure. The credit cards are a great product. Right? In the financial services system, if you see, they are one of the best product developed. They provide great flexibility for the people in terms of making payments. And but at the same time, it comes with a lot of challenges as well. Right. On an average, if we talk about UK, which is the second largest credit card market in the world, UK has over 66 million credit cards in rotation. A population of 60 million people overall. Right. So on an average, people have three to five credit cards. And it's quite difficult for them to manage. But at the same time, it has a different challenge as well. In the developed countries, the disparity in the interest rates is significantly higher. So your personal loan is on an average 8%. Your credit cards between 24 to 32%, as well as when it comes down to the payday loans, that can go up to 1,500%, and that's a matter of laugh. But that's reality. People heavily rely on the credit cards in the developed countries, and that's the culture, and, and that's the requirement of the time as well. So now, Humanizing credit card means empowering people to use the credit card in a better way mm -hmm. so that they don't land up in paying unnecessary charges. In 2020, in UK alone, people have paid over 5.9 billion in interest rates as well as the late payment fee. And that's a significant amount of money. Yes, it's huge actually, yes. So that's why it's required to humanize a credit and credit card experience in the UK. And that's why we exist. I see, I see. Well, thank you for sharing this as well. It's, it's an interesting area. And then I know there is one area uh, to which, uh, well, both of us uh, have uh, shown uh, very interest uh, these last few years. And that area is financial uh, inclusion, uh, because I know that we've discussed, uh, well, this topic of camera in the past, uh, before, you know, and as you know, I'm currently um, co-leader of the Financial Inclusion Working Group at the Global Impact uh, Fintech uh, Forum. So, I mean, as you know, according to the World Bank's uh, Global uh, Fintech Database, uh, globally, 1.7 billion people do not have a bank account, and policymakers struggle to provide uh, affordable, safe and accessible financial services to this unbanked population. How do you think that we, or governments, could solve that? And I know it's a very difficult question. I know there is no, no magic answer to that, but what steps do you think that we could like uh, take to make this uh, situation better? The first and foremost, I apologize, but I, I, I have iterated this umpteen times in the past as well, and, and to the right forums as well, that the 1.7 billion, the numbers that we refer, that is not true anymore, right? Okay. You're a lot less than 1.7 billion as of today, right? Yes, the numbers are huge, still, but the problem, we need to understand that it is not a financial services problem. It's majorly a public policy challenge. So what we really need to do is we need to bring the regulators, governments, and the financial institutions together and I'm very hopeful with the fintech solutions, which are 
coming up and I can tell you umpteen solutions which are already existing, uh, whether it's African market or the emerging economies, which are making a difference in the financial inclusion. And where I'm sitting today, I'm in Mumbai uh, at this point of time while I'm speaking to you, and India is uh, a very successful story for the financial inclusion globally. Whether you talk about uh, the UID, the unique identification program to uh, the free bank accounts to the people, and uh, the later on in the payments, we will talk about the UPI. It is making a significant difference. So how we can tackle this problem, we need to think strategically but first and foremost, we need to understand and agree it is not just a financial services problem. It's a public policy challenge. We need to change our policies and we need to be mindful about that as well. I see. And that's how we are going to tackle this problem. I see. Well, I mean, that's a very interesting approach, you know, because um, to you, it is not so much just about uh, financial services, no, but about uh, public policy. Uh, policies. So that's, of course, an interesting approach and I, I concur with you. And I wanted to talk about some well, possible uh, solutions. I mean, bearing in mind, of course, what you said about uh, public policy, no, but, but still, I mean, some new um, key players in the market that might uh, or might not uh, help in that area. And in that regard, I want to talk about uh, central bank digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. No, And I wanted to ask you, like, uh, if you think that um, CBDCs can help uh, promote financial inclusion, even though they are not a reality yet. They will be in some countries in the years to come. But still, do you think that they might help in that sense? And also, uh, if you think that uh, cryptocurrencies can also help in, in that regard. See, when it comes down to the central bank digital currency, right? we need to understand that CBDCs can digitize the value chains they can improve access to the digital financial services, and they can also help to enlarge the digital economy, right? And they are obviously increasing the efficiency of the digital payments, and they can be used offline where there's no internet coverage, right? But let's be realistic. There's a multifaceted challenge with the CVDCs as well, whether they will be able to solve the problem like financial inclusion, I wouldn't completely agree to that. We have just discussed about the, the major problem of financial inclusion and the underserved and the unserved people globally. The biggest challenge comes down to the regulatory, the public policy, infrastructure, devices, because the CVDC needs a broader infrastructure as well. Yes, it is going to reduce the cost of the transaction, but we need to understand whether the CBDCs are going to be the interest or they are going to be non-interest bearing. We need to understand what is the distribution model of the CBDCs and that particular economy or the geography. So there are multiple factors that we need to consider before we can come to a conclusion whether uh, CBDCs would be able to help in financial inclusion in a specific sector or whether the CBDCs will have financial inclusion as a priority Yes, they can help and support the financial inclusion, but whether it will be a priority for the central bank digital currencies. Whether we will have enough infrastructure available for the common people or with them. 
Mm-hmm. So the answer is still, uh, unfortunately, it's not very clear cut answer, but uh, yes, it has got the potential, but whether it will be a priority, whether it will have enough infrastructure and the support. I fully agree, actually. I mean, uh, actually, you're in charge of teaching the payments course at the uh, CFT in London, and I'm in charge of teaching the, the ones on CBDCs. And something that I mentioned in that course, and, and whenever I and if any webinar on this topic as well, is the fact or the idea that CBDCs per se are not, are not just like uh, one like um, one concept, but they are rather not more like an umbrella concept in the sense that each CBDC is going to be different. No? I mean, for example, Digital Yuan, which is about to be launched like in, in a few weeks from now, uh, doesn't need to look at all like the future Digital Euro or the E-Naira in Nigeria. No? I mean, each central bank is going to design those differently according to their uh, interests and, and, and public policies. So that means that uh, I think as well that CBDCs, not, they do not necessarily need to help promote financial inclusion unless that specific central bank has decided to do so. And once again, we are back to, to your idea no, of public policy. It's all about whether a certain uh, government, a certain central bank decides to put their focus on that or not. The biggest challenge I would like to add over here again, the biggest challenge in the financial inclusion is establishing the identity of a person, right? And the people's motivation to get and become part of the primary financial system. So we need to address that. We need to address whether we can establish the identity of the people. And that's what India did uh, pretty well, an exceptional job for over 1.3 billion population country. India did well with the UID. And that's what we need to learn. Right. And, uh, and on the top of that, what is the motivation for people to open a bank account? Why they would like to get away from the cash and get into the financial system? What is the benefit for them? We need to establish that as well. And we have always seen and, uh, and talked umpteen times about it. It's uh, a G2P, uh, you know, government to public payments. Uh, these are the basic means to start getting people into the primary financial system. Opening, establishing their identity, providing the free financial services, the basic financial services, and getting them into the mainstream. Whether CBDC can address that, uh, I don't think so. I see how that's... What, what about cryptocurrencies? Because we talked before no, about CBDCs, but then there is this uh, well, other area, no, the private, privately issued uh, cryptocurrencies. And I know that, uh, well, uh, I mean, aside from being uh, what we could call like a commodity, it's been used, of course, uh, to, to make payments in many places to the point that, for example, El Salvador uh, introduced uh, Bitcoin as their legal tender in September, which was quite a bold uh, move. But of course, uh, we're talking about a country whose monetary policy before that was well, tricky. You know? So I'm not saying that this example can be exported everywhere else. But as a general idea, do you think that cryptos might be useful in that area of trying to promote financial inclusion or you don't think it might be helpful? Cryptocurrencies, the whole idea about the cryptocurrencies was to store, retain, transfer the value, right? Whether the cryptocurrencies can 
address the financial inclusion challenge i do not agree to that mm -hmm. right the cryptocurrencies in its current form uh, it is quite volatile right and it is controlled uh, completely private so there is no control from the regulators or not enough control from the regulators let's put it that way and it is not controlled by the monetary policy as well and let's be realistic when we talk about the cryptocurrencies today at the first hand you are exchanging your fiat with the cryptos so in its current form whether it can address the financial inclusion are uh, definitely not because to have cryptos you got to have means in terms of the digital devices in terms of the your financial you need to be part of the financial system uh, you need to have accounts and payments capability then only you can uh, have cryptos in the future whether it can change the course uh, yes it has got the potential that's uh, very and, by the way very interesting uh, pickup uh, regarding el salvador right so it's a very interesting story and it was a uh, excellent move and i would say a very bold move the challenge with the el salvador like you know the fundamental problem that el salvador had the one fifth of the gdp right that is made up by the money coming from outside into el salvador mm -hmm. people are sending money home and uh, they were paying significant costs for the transactions right and that's why uh, it came up uh, whether we can have bitcoin as a legal tender 70% of the people in el salvador do not have a bank account right and bitcoin enables quick cheap payments across uh, the borders right but again i would say whether that was a right move i wouldn't completely agree to that because uh, when we talk about the bitcoin uh, a it is not completely regulated b it is significantly volatile so how can you have something as volatile as cryptocurrency as your legal tender well that puts you in jeopardy well i think yes i mean you're right i think in the case of el salvador it's mainly because um i mean because of where they came from no i mean no one thinks that that could be done like uh, let's say in i don't know in europe or in india or in many other places in the case of el salvador i guess it was because uh, i mean they had a monetary policy before but it was kind of a quite a failed one unfortunately no so i guess that uh, kind of allowed them no to to make this very bold move but i don't think that situation uh, despite being of course an interesting case of study can be like exported uh, uh, everywhere else uh, exactly as it was done in el salvador no i mean it's of course an interesting case for us to observe you know because i think a country like doing that for the first time is uh, of course uh, an interesting uh, thing to to see and to watch closely but i don't think it can be exported like uh, directly like to many other places at least I in the way it is to now no today i completely agree to that uh, i don't think that it is uh, it can be implemented in any other economies from small to larger economies at all mm -hmm. no and also the idea that, that you said before no i mean the, the very the very core of cryptocurrencies we find this idea no of being decentralized no i mean 
that, that, is, that is why they are the flagship of this uh, decentralized finance DeFi movement. So making those into legal tender, of course, raises some, some questions. But as I said, I mean, El Salvador did that, so we need to, to keep an eye on that and see what happens. Precisely. And well, I mean, I think that to sum up this part, we could say that uh, financial inclusion is, of course, a tricky area, no? and it depends uh, well, very much on, on public policy, not just on, on the financial services area. No? There is much more involved than just creating a new, um, a new idea or CBDCs. No, it's much more uh, profound than that, to put it uh, simply. And moving forward, I want to talk, of course, about uh, payments, uh, which is the the area that you are currently teaching at uh, CFTE and one area of, in which you have like a very extensive experience because as, as I said before you worked for uh, Visa prior to HSBC so uh, of course you are a huge expert on this and I wanted to ask you a few questions or ideas on, on this topic now. Um, first of all uh, whether you think uh, that uh, digital payments and digital wallets will replace uh, cash It's a very subjective question again. It's a matter of time. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of time and depends on the regions as well. So some regions will follow uh, earlier than the others because when it comes down to the digital payments, it has got its fundamental challenge as well. Again, related to the uh, infrastructure, devices, people's capability and the cash uh, invitation in the economies. So if you consider in the emerging and Asian market, it's quite uh, heavily in rotation, but on, on very surprising, India's digital payments in terms of the numbers is the largest in the world, right? So the digital payment adoption in India has grown exponentially in the last couple of years, and thanks to UPI, the Unified Payment Interface, right? But whether digital payments will replace cash completely, in, even in India, uh, I don't see that's happening in the near future and uh, not even in a decade, if I'm being completely realistic. Yes, I see the other economies like UK, Sweden, and few other countries which will follow earlier uh, than the other economies for uh, the broader adoption of the digital payments, but whether it will completely replace, uh, replace cash, uh, that's a question, you know. Uh, cash will exist uh, because we still have got uh, unserved, underserved, uh, unbanked people, uh, even in the developed economies. UK has over 2 million people who are, are unbanked. And uh, similarly, if you consider uh, US, US has got a huge population which is unbanked. So it's not a, unbanked or is not just a problem for emerging economies or Asia or African story. It's existing everywhere. So it's a matter of time for the digital uh, payments taking over the cash completely or replacing the cash. So adoption, I completely agree. Yes, we are seeing the exponential growth in the adoption, but replacing cash, uh, that is at a distance. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, you mentioned before uh, this idea of uh, UPI in India, and you actually mentioned that before as well. So. For all those uh, listeners who are not from India, uh, could you please uh, summarize briefly uh, these uh, UPI, UAD ideas? Because uh, it sounds, of course, uh, like a very interesting uh, idea, and I, I, know, I know it's been uh, 
successful. You mentioned that before as well. So if you could like maybe please give us uh, some more thoughts on, on that. Sure. So the unified uh, payment infrastructure is uh, conceptualized by NPCI, which is the National Payment Council of India, uh, are being part of the uh, in the consulting for UPI in its formation in the early days. So it's a, a payment infrastructure which is uh, developed for India. It's a national payment infrastructure, and where the banks are interconnected. So that and that has driven the growth in the fintech sector in India, as well as the digital payment adoption in India. So the people can make the digital payments at, a, at the fingertips. And the banks can connect their payment infrastructure with the UPI. And that is the central payment infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I see. So it's a uh, you get in a nutshell in a for layman terms it's a digital payment infrastructure of India where the banks are interconnected. Well, uh, thank you for sharing. It sounds uh, uh, very interesting, and I wanted, of course, for you to give some some more thoughts on this. You no, know, just in case, because I know that many of our listeners. I'm sure we can have so. a. When we have a next session or some time, uh, uh, I can talk more in detail about the UPI, what it is and what it does. But as you would imagine, uh, UPI led the digital adoption, the digital payment adoption in India. And all the growth that you are seeing, especially in the, the fintech and the payments landscape is in India. It's all due to the unified payment interface. It's the UPI. It's because mm -hmm. of that. And that is uh, one of the major uh, factor. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I'm mean, looking forward to discussing this, this like uh, in more detail with you, like in any of our uh, next uh, podcasts. Uh, but I guess that for now, the idea is clear for all of our uh, listeners. Now, I wanted to ask you as well about um, payments, but uh, especially about the new technologies that can be applied to this uh, payments area, such as, for example, uh, what do you think that uh, IoT uh, can mean to the payment uh, industry or uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning? So in payments, we have been utilizing the latest technology for the longest time. Uh, I recall in 2010, when we were building up the real-time scoring system, RTS for Visa, that was uh, giving up uh, for each transaction, it was giving the real-time scoring. And based on that, the authorize, it was sent to the authorization. So we, we are utilizing the various technologies for the long, longest time. The artificial intelligence, machine learning, the typical use case that everybody will talk about is the uh, frauds. And, uh, and that's what we all know. And there are umpteen other use cases as well. Similarly, when we talk about the IoT, it's very interesting because we are looking into the voice commerce. Uh, we are looking into uh, the IoT enabled payments. You can make payments using anything. Uh, your nowadays your car, your fridge, your washing machine, uh, any device could be payment enabled, right? And you're utilizing your various devices, your watches, your uh, even rings. So there are various devices, and that is all due to the IoT. So uh, 
and it's a all interconnected uh, payments and interconnected devices. And it has got a great future. We are already seeing the huge adoption in the voice commerce where people are utilizing their voice to make payments. And uh, there are umpteen alternate payment methods, right? So mm -hmm. there's a, and, and not only about artificial intelligence, machine learning and uh, IoT, but we are seeing the adoption of the cloud. We are looking into the payment as a service or uh, where the uh, managing payments for an organization, whether it's a regional bank or a large enterprise, it, it is a painful task. Uh, it is a humongous task. And it needs quite a lot of people, infrastructure. Now the large organizations or the enterprises, service providers, they're providing payment infrastructure as a service. So we are already seeing the huge adoption in, in the cloud landscape. Mm -hmm. So yes, the payment is always uh, at the forefront. They are adopting the latest and emerging technology. And that's why I always say like payment, uh, if you want to see an innovation, go and look into payments. Yes. Well, I mean, it's of course an interesting industry. So talking about innovations and payments, uh, I wanted to get back to the um, well, cryptocurrencies. Uh, again, we spoke about cryptos and financial inclusion. And now I wanted to ask you whether you think that uh, cryptos will play uh, an important role in the future of payments, uh, or especially of payment companies and virtual banks. And I mean, or in other words, I mean, do you think it's going to become like more and more common to see more um, payment companies, virtual banks, uh, etc., allowing their, uh, their customers to buy and sell cryptos, uh, deposit, withdraw, uh, invest, exchange with fiat and, and send to other people? Do you think that, that this trend is going to continue? Yes, uh, this will continue. The reason is uh, because we are seeing a huge adoption uh, of the cryptocurrencies uh, by the retail uh, customers, including the uh, enterprise and the uh, commercial customers as well. Uh, but in the retail environment, we are seeing a huge adoption. If I can just give you the numbers, like in India, uh, between April 2020 to May 2021, uh, we have seen a seven time growth, seven times in the adoption of, of cryptocurrency users, right? Uh, and, and the valuation as well from uh, 900 odd billions, so it has gone uh, close to uh, 7 billion in terms of the investments into the cryptocurrencies. So just that, uh, and India is one of the largest uh, uh, leading in the cryptocurrency uh, adoption by the retail investors. There are over 15 million investors who have invested money in the cryptocurrencies, right? And the, uh, whether it is right or wrong, uh, you know, time will tell. Uh, whether it is a FOMO, uh, yes, up to a certain extent, it feels like a FOMO. Uh, so the financial institutions or the fintechs or anybody else who, who are providing services to the retail investors or the retail customers, they have to provide uh, the required services. Right? If the customer is demanding it, they have to serve it. And similarly, we are seeing the adoption, whether it's a bank or some of the fintechs or some of the neo banks or the digital banks, uh, they're already offering the services, including some of the leading banks as well. They started getting into uh, the landscape of the cryptocurrencies, including the payment companies. They have got uh, huge projects running around the cryptocurrencies and the adoption of cryptocurrencies and the cards distribution, which are supporting cryptocurrencies as well. So yes, I do not see it's a stopping anytime soon. Uh, I, it has continued to grow. Mm -hmm. 
makes sense. Uh, well, um, thanks for, for sharing this and we are coming to an end, but not yet, but because uh, before wrapping this up, I would like to ask you like, uh, well, some predictions for this year, now that 2021 has uh, already been left uh, behind and we are entering into 2022. I wanted to ask you like uh, any predictions for this year, like that you want to share with us uh, on the like payments industry or maybe in general in the whole uh, fintech industry, anything relevant that you think uh, may happen uh, this year because we come from two very fascinating years, you know, 2021 and, and 2020 were like uh, very fascinating in the fintech area. So there is, is there like anything you, you think that will happen that we need to bear in mind? Digital payments adoption continue to grow exponentially. Buy now, pay later, uh, the adoption is growing at a rapid pace. We are going to see some uh, hurdles uh, because of the regulatory and the compliances uh, which are around the corner and uh, because we have already seen uh, quite a bit of setback into the buy now pay later landscape so we got to be very about the buy now pay later as well but uh, the adoption is uh, tremendous uh, we are going to see the growth in the cryptocurrencies adoption and the regulations around the cryptocurrencies and specifically uh, the method of payments, like huge adoption in the vo uh, voice commerce that is going to grow, and the connected payments. So there's a huge list if I can talk about because uh, the transformation happening in all the areas. If you talk about the cross-border payments, there was a, a huge work going on to the cross-border payments. ISO 20022 around the corner. Uh, there's a lot of transformation happening around uh, across the globe. Uh, for ISO uh, 20,022 adoption. So yeah, there are umpteen initiatives, you know, real-time payments, uh, that's already happening in a majority part of the world. Uh, US is, uh, is already there and uh, coming up with uh, their own UPI-like infrastructure and uh, for the real-time payments. Uh, P27 in Nordics, uh, that is geared up. Uh, it is slowed down a bit. Uh, but I'm pretty sure we are going to see a uh, good success in 2022. So yeah, there are uh, quite a lot of uh, global initiatives which are shaping up and we are going to see quite a lot of success in 2022. Well, uh, they all sound uh, fascinating. Uh, thank you for sharing those uh, with us. And even though I, I would like to continue this discussion for much longer, we are running out uh, of time. So I would like to thank you, Ritesh, for coming to, to my show, to my podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with you for this, uh, for over uh, half an hour. And I hope I can host you soon, uh, sometime uh, later uh, this year, because it's been a pleasure to learn so much from you on financial inclusion, uh, payments, and all, and in general on, on the area of fintech. Thank you, and pleasure is all mine. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And well, to all my listeners, uh, dear friends, uh, stay tuned for the next episodes. Thank you. Bye.